I'm sure it relates to diet and our lifestyle, mm. not getting as much sun, not getting as much light, not getting as much exercise, not 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 having the right foods. You know, having all these engineered foods is not good for us. You know, I mean, really, if if we if we you know did away with our our modern you know food industry, we'd probably be all of us a lot better off. I've yeah, kind of wouldn't. done that recently yeah. and it's yeah. changed my life. Yeah. I, yeah. So yeah, I, no, no. I had yeah. Crohn's yeah. like symptoms yeah. that were just debilitating. I was down to 151 yeah. pounds right. and I switched to right. mostly meat right. and, and certain vegetables. Yeah. And, right. and, and I've been doing right. great. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it makes a difference. Those microbes are critical and the microbial balance. Uh, we actually did some work on that and developed a medical hypothesis that is one of those hypotheses regarding Crohn's and IBD and other kinds of uh, uh, microbe autoimmune diseases that, that uh, but, but it, there, there aren't that many uh, hypotheses that explain it. And so the hypothesis that we developed is one of those that's out there. And we were actually funded by a medical doctor for some time and uh, developed some ideas that we then, you know, put out there in a, in a, a journal called medical hypothesis. And so, and, and actually the idea is very interesting. You want me to tell you about it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. So the idea, the idea was this, that uh, uh, in the gut, for example, the microbial community uh, produces ferments or organic acids. Okay, we're familiar with because plant roots are also doing this and organic acids. Uh, but anyways, uh, they're producing organic acids like butyrate and propionate or propionic acid, butyric acid. But those organic acids have the effect of causing microbes in that community to, uh, to be avirulent. To, to not be aggressive, instead to live at, in that community kind of peacefully, right? Peacefully together in this co coexistence with all of these other nutrients around, the organic acids being there. Uh, but what happens is if you get, for example, uh, archaeans, if you, if you upset the system, for example, take on antibiotics uh, uh, into the gut and kill some of the microbes, or you're eating in such a way that you favor microbes like yeasts and archaea, archaeans, right? What happens is, uh, uh, particularly with antibiotics, because that kills bacteria, but doesn't affect some of the archaeans. So those microbes that are left, yeasts or archaea, will then eat up those organic acids, the butyrate and propionate. And when they do that, then the bacteria that are left will then become aggressive. They'll, their virulence genes increase, and then uh, the, they will attack the cells uh, of, our, of, our, of our intestines. Uh, those cells essentially, I mean, if you think about it, our, our cells, uh, animal cells, are simply highly evolved archaeans, archaeans. And so it's like attacking those archaeans, uh, and, uh, uh, but it, that's why we then we have inflammation, we have Crohn's and IBD and stuff like that. But it has to do with this relationship between bacteria and archaea. And it goes all the way back to the kind of like the primordial soup, 
right? Where archaea and bacteria lived in association and close association in a kind of a syntropic balance. And the bacteria would produce these organic acids and the, the, uh, uh, the archaea would then take those very gradually and utilize those. But if the archaea came in high concentration, they'd remove them all and then the bacteria would attack and, and, and invade and try to kill those archaeans. Okay, so it's like this primordial war, but which translates into our guts because that essentially is that primordial ooze is what we carry around in our guts. And so those same kind of associations that we would have are still present. And uh, when, when we have this imbalance and those microbes uh, become a virulent, virulent, they, they attack essentially would be attacking the Archaeans, we get attacked instead. And we have uh, Crohn's disease and IBD and stuff like that. That's the theory, right? This is called a centropic imbalance hypothesis. And so it's, it's out there, it's just a short little paper. And, uh, you know, our evidence was in a combination of like evidence from the medical literature and evidence from our plant biology studies and our experiments. Uh, but it's, it's a unique hypothesis and it's noted when people are talking about these uh, diseases, these autoimmune, even like arthritis is thought to be an autoimmune, uh, a bacterial disease, believe it or not, where uh, at least one hypothesis is that the bacteria will uh, move out of the gut and then they move because the gut, you know, as we age our our defenses decline. And so then they begin to move. They move through the body and they get to the bones, the edge of the bones, those tissues there, and then they, they can uh, attack those tissues. And they actually form, remember I talked about L-forms and the, the protoplasm going to the roots? Well, the same thing happens there. People have seen these L-forms associated with arthritic joints. And so like in the 1950s or 60s, there was a hypothesis that, that in fact, arthritis is one of these bacterial diseases where the bacteria go into the tissue. So, uh, you know, a lot of our, <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting? So the same kind of phenomena that we see in plants likely happens in animals. It's just a little bit different. And, and, and remember, I mean, this is not something that arthritis is not something that strictly relates to our, our food system what we eat because even the like the neanderthals they know from the neanderthal bones they saw they see arthritis in some of those bones so it's just something that happens to us when we age mm. and those bacteria bacteria start to move through the body but it, but it's worse when you have Crohn's and stuff like that uh, because then they really are eating up your tissues and your gut and all that inflammation and so forth but do you think that's cultural diet possibly too? Like maybe those Neanderthals were eating grains and if we were on Okinawa. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right, I don't right. know. I don't know. But when you age, you do have, we do have problems. I mean, our, our, mm. our bodies are not as strong when we get older and immune systems do uh, wane and, you know, defenses go down. I mean, we our defenses depend on, you know, strong cells and so forth. And we can maintain that with good health, with good eating habits and good practices, practices as long as we can. But eventually uh, age starts to 
starts to show, you know, nothing we can do about that. We can set it back, but we can't stop it. And we all will die. We all grow old and we will all die. Some of us will age more gracefully and beautifully than others. (laughs) And that's what we want. But I mean, we all will all have that, you know, eventually we're all, you know, I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to enjoy our lives now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I've cut, I've cut out like breads and nightshades and potatoes. I was eating potatoes twice a day. And as soon as I stopped that, it felt like I had stopped taking poison. (laughs) Wow. Well, but, but is that the same as peppers? Okay. Nightshades. We had a Rutgers professor, uh, years ago who actually started this nightshade society where people don't eat any nightshade family, right? No mm. potatoes, no peppers, no da, da, da. Right. But that seems that to me, that seems different than not eating potatoes. Right. Potatoes is a rich starch, a starchy crop that, you know, that's really not good for you. But if you're eating peppers and sweet peppers and tomatoes, the tomatoes are too much yeah. right now. They're too much. Yeah. Too much. But I'm also so, it's yeah. so, it's like from the perspective of inflammation, it's like everything seems like too much, but the, from the perspective of health, the limit, you know what I mean? There's limits and you can go pretty close yeah. to them sometimes. So. Yeah. I, I, well, I grains, inherited it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, grains, I'm sure. Grains yeah. and p- potatoes, too much starch, too much sugars. You're, you're making the wrong microbes grow. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and it's been yeah. so dramatic. I've, I've been able to put on muscle mm-hmm. for the first time in years. So, so wow. I'm super excited about it. Um, I, I'm surprised <laughs> that's the first time because, you know, I mean, I've, saw, I've seen those uh, 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 YouTube videos of you out there working in your garden, you know, with your implements and stuff you know so yeah. i mean it seems like you would have been building lots of muscles yeah it's almost like you know when you work out and you don't give your body the ability to rest and so the muscles never truly grow they just kind of stay there in that state of inflammation and usage yeah yeah that's where i was just function wise and um i know this because i once upon a time i could do 24 pull-ups and, and, and now I can do reps of like seven, three, three reps of seven, which is good. But, but I was down to like two to three, yeah. like six months ago. Yeah. So I'm like rebuilding I again. Yeah. 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 There's no way I could do that. <laughs> no, I was the Anymore. same way. I, I, I thought, I well, do I don't know, but I'm sick, but look, it's different, Matt. I'm 63, you know, going on 64. How many, how many, pull-ups would be expected to to really do you know i don't know how many i'm supposed to do i don't (laughs) i don't know i don't know but and plus you know i'm i'm really a you know know, i'm mostly inside right doing this doing this this work or in the lab or going in the field now i've been going up to the roof of Ferran. i have uh in this building i'm in there are some plants up there that are growing on the roof with no soil. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that those are some very special plants that can grow with no soil yeah. and thrive up there. And one of, one of them actually is a, is a hackberry, you know, hackberry, it's in the, it's in the cannabis, cannabis family. It's in the marijuana family. 
you know, so, I mean, it is, I, I'm thinking, you know, if it's like uh, marijuana uh, and to be able to do that, to be able to grow like that, it, Who's it helping is it? like, it's uh, exactly, you know, you know who I think is helping it, right? You know who I think is helping, it, right? Those end of fights that have got to be yeah, the loaded and different things in it, you know? So, I mean, that's my, that's my uh, infatuation at the, at the present time. You know, you know, but anyways, it's up there. That hackberry is up there and a few other plants growing with no soil, mm. literally no soil, no soil up there, no nutrients, you know, just doing its thing, thriving up there. You know, so anyways, that's uh, it's up there just waiting for me is when I have time to get to the lab again. So is it like in the. um is it like uh, those like tar, like interleaved roof, like tile things, or is it a flat roof with gravel? No, it has rocks on it, it has rocks on it. And it's in an area where there may be some dust accumulating, maybe some leaves have gotten there. And these hackberries, you know, interesting. I mean, if you look at it, I just did a web search. Hackberry is interesting in that. It's a plant that grows in very poor soils, mostly sand or sandy loams, uh, where, uh, and they grow well in those soils, where if you actually put fertilizers on it, they don't respond to the fertilizer. Instead, they, instead it makes them grow poorly by addition of nitrogen fertilizer. So They're, myco uh, it, they're mycorrhizally it, dependent is what that it means to me. Well, it, it may be mycorrhizae, it, it may be endophytes that are fixing nitrogen, that are nitrogen right, internal right. in the tissues, right? Uh, which would mean that they have their own super, uh, providers of nitrogen and, they don't, and this uh, exogenous nitrogen just interferes with the process. And actually from the literature, at least the, the paper I saw about that, indicates that it, it makes them less productive in terms of their fruit production and they don't respond in terms of additional foliage to this added nitrogen. So, and of course, I think it's bacterial endophytes in the tissues that I want to, you know, to see if that's the case. And so, so that's my uh, experimental material on the roof of Ferran. also gives me a reason to go up to the roof during the mid morning to get some sun, you know, when I work on these, these plants that are up there growing without soil. So do you think we're going to be able to figure out and find, and then re-inoculate all these plants that we've essentially sterilized over the past few decades, other endophytes, we're going to be able to find their endophytes, bring them back. And, and then the IMO's Indigenous Microorganism Consortium will then provide the ones that we miss. I, you know, I think so. I think, I think that the more we learn about it, the more we're going to be able to do that. And the fact, don't forget that the first source of most of these microbes is actually from healthy soil, right? organic soils that are filled with microbes. And these plants can fish them back out of those soils if you have good soil, right? So it may take time, it may take time. Now, some plants like tomato, the microbes in tomatoes uh, are actually the same microbes we have in our guts, 
some like Micrococcus luteus, Acinetobacter, and uh, and we even got E. coli out of tomato seeds. Uh, but uh, those microbes may be acquired when they pass through the gut of the animal. And, you know, so tomato, because tomato is one of those giant berries, right, where the animal comes and eats it, and then it goes through the gut and picks up those microbes. You know, that's another source for some of these. And so some plants may be picking up a lot of these microbes from, from you know, the, the vector, the animal that eats them and, and moves the seed through the, through the intestine. So anyway, wow. it's really interesting that I know, isn't that, isn't that interesting? There was actually related to that. I've been talking to a very creative lady in, uh, in Switzerland uh, named Harriet Nella. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, do you know her? She, yeah, we were talking, her, we were her, talking this morning. Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, she actually, you know, uh, she's the one who raised the idea that tomato, some of the tomato uh, 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 carotenes, uh, uh, lutein, and that, those kind of uh, 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 carotenes, antioxidants in tomato could come from these microbes like Micrococcus luteus. Micrococcus luteus produces, it's one of these, from tomato, it, it's a bacterium that produces a lot of antioxidants. And among those are the carotenes that make it very difficult to put it in other plants. It inhibits other plants because the plant can't control them with superoxide once they go into the root cells. Okay, but uh, in tomato, uh, these endophytes could be a source of of carotenes for the for the tomato and could fill these fruits with uh, antioxidants. We don't we don't know that, but it it actually makes a lot of sense because the interaction of the microbe and the and the plant, the cell plant cells inside the tomato or inside any plant have to do with superoxide, you know, interacting and then antioxidant response from the microbe. And so if these microbes are are responding to the superoxide produced by the plant with carotenoids, you know, then the plant has a ready source of getting these carotenoids that, that it can then accumulate and into the fruit. And this is why wild tomatoes are black and covered with streaks it, of anthocyanin, right? It, it could be why, it could be why we see those it could, it could be, I mean, I can't say for sure, but it could be the reason yeah, that we see so many antioxidants in wild tomatoes. It could also be the reason why the old tomatoes taste so good. You know, people always say, well, well what happened to tomatoes? When I, when I was a kid, they used to taste so good. And it may be, that may be the reason. We may have lost some of those microbes in the way that we now produce the, the, the seeds. I have a friend who has bred over 60 varieties in 20 years. He was the one who partnered with OSU, Oregon State University, to breed the Galapagos and Peruvian wild tomatoes with heirloom tomatoes until they were edible again. So they went all the way to inedible, paired them with the wildest fruit they could find, really high anthocyanin, basically pest-resistant tomatoes. And, and they rebred them. And then the first one was the, 
uh, something rose. Um, anyway, he's got so many black beauty is his like flagship one atomic, uh, atomic grape is another one. Uh, there's like deep galaxy. They're all the most incredible colors. And I think it's the Peruvian and, and South American, uh, like, uh, microbiology being re re-inoculated. It, it makes, it makes sense. The, the, you know, those, uh, you know, taking those plants right out of, right out of the jungle or the mountains, wherever they were, I think a lot of these are just vines in the jungles is a, because these native uh, plants are going to be filled with microbes that help them survive. They may not be as productive in terms of the number of fruits, right? Because that's mm -hmm. one of the things that we do. We make plants make a lot of fruits, okay? But they're going to be probably better in terms of the amounts of microbes that are in them and the, the degree to which those fruits and the seeds and seedlings are defended by those microbes. So, I mean, it's a, it's a different cost. You know, when we select, select things, uh, select plants, we try to increase the, the vigor in terms of production, right? Fecundity of the plant, make them produce more seeds and fruits and so forth. But that's a cost. And the cost is we lose those microbes. That's one, that's one, that's well, one cost. And that's because it's a stress response in some ways. It's like, I'm going to die soon, so I need to make seeds. So I need to put out fruit. Like if you cut the it, head it off. It is. Yeah. It and is. I learned this early on it, because I had goat's it head. Is. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, see, if they have their microbes, they don't have that same stress, right? They're not trying to, they don't have to, they don't have to reproduce as fast to survive. So, you know, it's kind of, I mean, I was toying around with the idea lately. It's uh, sort of the uh, uh, plant domestication paradox, right? And that we, we, the paradox is that we try to increase vigor and productivity in the crop. And, it's, and instead we make the plant uh, uh, contain fewer endophytes and and uh, are less defended by those endophytes and are more dependent on our fertilizer inputs. So we, we kind of weaken the plant, really. We try to increase the vigor by plant breeding and its value to humans, and we end up weakening the, the plant. It's fascinating how so much of these things overlap um, and and how we're just really discovering these linkages between these things now. And naming them is so important. Um, so in that effort, I'm really excited to, to learn more about this new stain, this new nitrate stain. You're pulling back the screen on a world that was once invisible and still invisible to many people from the training they've gotten. So this is, this is thrilling. Yeah, that, that is what we're trying to do, is to make visible what was invisible. And uh, literally, because you can't get at this, you know, if you're only doing, you know, the molecular biology, uh, you really have to be kind of a holistic to see this. Stuff. And you have to see it, too. That's important. Uh, okay, so, okay, so really what I'm going to talk about are endophytes. Yeah, but they're the bacteria that are inside plant cells. 
and, and the consequences for regenerative crops. But I'm gonna focus on the really the interactions between the microbes and these plant cells. Uh, and uh, okay, endophytes, of course, endophytes are any kind of microbe that goes in a plant and doesn't cause disease. So, uh, and they have all kinds of effects on plants. As you know, they make plants more stress tolerant. They control diseases. They, they control plant development. I'll talk about root hair development and specifically, uh, but uh, the, what I talk, when I talk about root hair development, actually these microbes may be in leaves too. So some of this may apply. We don't, we don't know yet that they may be in the leaf cells, <laughs> but it may be important, especially in plants like the hackberry that I was talking about growing with no fertilizer. Uh, they also improve nutrient absorption. We'll talk about that. And they will reduce weedy competitors of plants. Okay, so, okay. And endophytes, all plants have them. No plant is free of them. Any plant that's free of endophytes is a troubled plant. Doesn't develop properly, won't grow properly. Okay, one of, one of, one of those that has a lot of endophytes is, is hemp, marijuana. You know? I mean, we don't think about it. We think of marijuana, you know, you think of the, you know, puffing away on a reefer, you don't think you're, you're smoking microbes, but you're likely smoking a lot of microbes in there. You're likely smoking a lot of microbes. So take the seed here, hemp, germinate that. This is the, this is the root, and you can see this brown. Right? This is a root hair showing this little black hair to the left, all these little grains in there. Those are microbes in those root hairs. To the right, you can see a root hair, all those little spherical things. Those are all the bacteria inside those root hairs, these uh, roots of hemp and all plants get filled with these microbes, filled with the microbes. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a statement here that one possibility is that these microbes are also going into the leaf hairs, to the trichomes. And in a plant like hemp uh, or marijuana, that could be affecting the production of the secondary metabolite like THC and you know either making more metabolites making a more diversity of those THC like metabolites or you know we we don't know yet we do know that we can see these bacteria in these root hairs and you know I mean that's just you know one aspect but if we go you know it takes a lot more work to to uh, really develop that to show that it's affecting secondary metabolites but uh, this is uh, uh, the main work that we've done is on root endophytes and the process that's called rhizophagy, and that's the rhizo for root phagy eating. And that is the idea or the phenomenon where these roots will take microbes in into the roots and then degrade them. And uh, this was the first paper on rhizophagy, uh, and it was uh, done by some. Uh, Australian investigators. This is one of those uh, 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 Chani Pong Fu, the little picture, picture of her to the right there. Uh, but they wrote a, a paper uh, in PLOS One called table, Turning the Table, Plants Consume Microbes as a Source of Nutrients. And uh, after that paper, we started looking at this more closely and we showed it was actually a cycle. And that is a diagram of a plant root and uh, root tip here. What happens is those uh, microbes are attracted to the root. They're taken into the root cells because the roots are secreting eggs. They're taken into the cells. And then those microbes are extracted 
for nutrients using superoxide produced by the plant cell. And I'll show you a little bit more details about, about that in a little bit. But then the surviving microbes will, will trigger root hair elongation. And as those root hairs elongate, then those surviving microbes are shot out of the tips of the root hairs back to the soil. And they will uh, then go back to the soil and can gather more nutrients later to be attracted back to the, to the root tip. And, 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 and that way there's a constant flow of nutrients from the soil into the root. And this is returned the rhizophagy cycle, the rhizophagy cycle. There's some details in that that I didn't talk about. But these microbes, they are from seeds and they are from the soil. Uh, seeds carry the best microbes and, and uh, uh, that enables the seedling to survive in soils where there may not be abundant healthy microbes. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the initial source of all those microbes is from the soils. And uh, so healthy soils can actually uh, provide those microbes when they're lost in time. If the soil is healthy, that's the reason to have healthy soils. Uh, but they can be lost on seeds by seed treatments. And uh, uh, anyways, so in grasses, those microbes are carried on the surface of the seed. In some other dicots, they tend to be carried inside the seeds. And so they're a little more a little hardier. This is a grass. Uh, this is the lima, the little leaf tissue on the surface of the seed. And you can see these black arrows. This shows the little spherical structures. And you can see in there, the little dots in there, those are the bacteria inside those structures. And those structures, um, they actually don't have a name, but we're calling them bacteriomes because of similar structures in insects. And these, this is a structure that is uh, we think evolved in grasses uh, for these microbes to be carried inside the cells, actually, of these tissues associated with grass seeds, like weed and turf grass and stuff like that would have these bacteriomes with microbes in them. That shows those. There's another image. You can see those there. So plants have evolved structures to carry microbes in them. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And that's a close-up of that again. Okay, this is a grass germinating and you can see kind of yellow around the roots where these blue arrows show. And that yellow is where the bacteria come out. The, yellow, the bacteria come off and they'll colonize the root tip there and they'll also colonize the shoot tip. So they're going into both places. They're not just going on the, on the, on the roots. They're also going into shoots. And so there's something happening there is what I'm point I'm trying to make in those other tissues. And uh, so anyways... This just shows a root tip and you can see the microbes around it. Okay, and those exudates are being secreted there. And so the plant is cultivating the microbes. The plant is doing this. The plant is in charge of this process. The plant is attracting these microbes, internalizing them and getting nutrients from these microbes. So this is, this is part of the, uh, what is the term I've heard before is the vegetable mind, right? The intelligence of plants, the intelligence of plants, and uh, that plants are not stupid organisms. They actually ha have complex processes and uh, ecologies that they engage in. And in this case, they are managing soil microbes. They are farming or um, Jeff Lowenfels 
says to, uh, he has a different term for it. He says they are ranching these soil microbes. They are, uh, that is, they are cultivating, bringing these microbes from the soil. They're internalizing them. They're taking off their cell walls and they're getting nutrients out of those cell walls. And that is like shearing sheep, getting the wool off the sheep, the nutrients from the surface. Okay, so that's a good analogy, I think. These plants are ranching these, these microbes. But you think plants like grass ranch a lot of microbes because all of this rhizophagy cycle is happening at the root tips and grasses make a lot of these fibrous roots that go everywhere. You can see this is a, a corn root. You can see all the little branching there. So every single tip there that you see in that root is where rhizophagy cycle is happening. So these plants at all these root tips are doing rhizophagy cycle, getting nutrients from these microbes. So you can imagine Plants like grasses do this rhizophagy cycle a lot. Other plants that don't make uh, as many uh, root tips do it less, or they do it under seedlings. And when plants are like trees are big, what happens is the mycorrhizae come, right? The mycorrhizae come and they'll cover those roots and you no longer have root hairs and you don't have so many of these root branches. You still have it in places and their rhizophagy cycle is happening, but where, where these fungi, like uh, ectomycorrhizae cover roots, it then takes over this process and, and absorbs nutrients for the, for the plant. So you have plants doing all these different symbiosis in order to survive and uh, in order to thrive, which is, I should say. But in the rhizophagy cycle, these bacteria uh, from the soil get taken into the root cell and they, in the, when they're in soil, they have their cell walls like this and they may be rods. You can see to the left here, those are bacteria with their cell walls, they're rod shapes. And once they're, once they're in the root cell, they're hit with superoxide. So the plant can detect them, the root cell itself can detect them, and then it produces superoxide and zaps them. And that superoxide will then oxidize off the cell wall. And uh, like Jeff Lowenfels says, takes the nutrients off in those cell walls and it has protein in it and has some other nutrients, other metals and stuff in those cell walls. And so they get all that. And also there's potassium that comes out of these, of these uh, bacteria too. So the, the bacteria begin to leak potassium. So that's an important source of potassium for these and probably phosphate as well for these microbes. But the picture to the right shows these spherical protoplast stages. These are what the bacteria look like without cell walls. They're just these little spherical things. And the plant, in the, when they're in this phase, the plant can replicate them very fast. And I'll show you pictures of that, of that replication. That's the enzyme. I won't go into this, but this is the enzyme in the root cell that, that produces the superoxide. And what it does, it takes oxygen. The, the enzyme, I should say, is NADPH oxidase. It's in the root cell membrane, but it takes oxygen from the air. So roots, in order to do this, roots have to have oxygen. They get oxygen out of the soil air, out of the root, off the root hair, out of the soil around the root hair. They take that oxygen and they make superoxide. And that's the, the superoxide they hit the microbes with. And that they use that superoxide to control these microbes and extract nutrients out of them. It's a really cool process. But this shows a root cell uh, of a grass. This is, happens to be Phragmites, a, 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 an invasive grass. But you can see the cell here. You can see the black arrows there. That shows these little protoplast stages inside those cells. And uh, you can see they're replicating in there. The plant can 
encourage this replication because you can jostle these microbes around and, and uh, make them replicate. But this actually is a diagram of that. And so these microbes are not actually inside the cell itself. Instead, they're inside the cell wall. You can see the gray here, it's a diagram of it. You can see the gray cell wall. And the, the middle part there, you can see the line kind of in the middle part, that line, uh, that, that would be the, the inside the inside here is the cytoplasm of the cell. That line is the membrane, the cell membrane. So they actually are outside that cell membrane in what's called the periplasmic space. So between the cell wall and the membrane of the root cytoplasm, they're in that. So it's just outside that root cell, really. But they're trapped in there because the plant is secreting the superoxide line. I'm holding them there. The plant also moves them around in this process called cyclosis. So the plant is moving them around like this, moving them around in the cell, taking nutrients out of them, but also breaking them up. And I'll show an image of that. Uh, it's really cool, but it, it just goes to show again how these plants are controlling these microbes. This shows a root hair of a grass, a poa, reptans, one of our little experimental grasses, a little grass, blue grass. And you can see the root hair forming. You can see this is a fluorescent stain that we use. You can see the bacteria in there, all around here in the, in the periplasmic space around that, uh, underneath the cell wall. And you can see accumulating at the tip. They tend to accumulate at the tip. That's how the plant manages these microbes. It'll make them go at the tip. And you'll see that's, in, that's important as this goes on. But uh, the, the, plant, the plant needs these microbes in there in order for the plant to develop properly. And one, one for example, is root hair development. And that's the one I'm gonna talk mostly about root hair development. Without these bacteria, you have no root hair development. Okay, this shows a grass seedling, Bermuda grass seedling. This is where we removed all the microbes by using Clorox for about an hour worth of sterilization to get all the microbes off of the surface of it. And then we germinated it. And then you can see now the root here and you see there's no hairs on this root. Okay, in the same experiment, we put the microbe back on. We removed the microbes and we put it back on. This is one of our bacteria, Pseudomonas that we got from our Phagmites that we put on this Bermuda grass. Uh, these seeds will remove the microbes. And you can see now, you can see hairs there. Hairs immediately form when we put those microbes there. And if you look, this is a picture from around the root tip. And you can see the white arrows now. The, these white arrows are showing the bacteria. You can see the rods right around the root tip is where these bacteria go in. And when they go in, they have their rods immediately. You can see the rod forms in there, those little brown rods. And you can see also they're filled with those, a lot of them go into those, those bacteria, into those root cells. And this is a little bit older and you can see the, this is a root and you can see the hairs and you can see the little brown dots, all those brown dots of the bacteria that are inside those root hairs. So those root hairs are filled with bacteria. The, mm -hmm. the bacteria, they just, uh, these plants just become engorged with these bacteria. They are like, like eating like mad. And they're also reproducing. And I'll show you, I'll show you that. Okay, here is, looks at all the microbes. This is a root hair of, of that Bermuda grass and it's seedling. And you can see the little brown dots. Those are all those bacteria in there. Protoplast, they're spherical. This normally would be a rod. Okay, so, so, so we know that you get no root hairs on, as far as we can tell, any plant 
unless you have microbes in those root cells, unless the microbes go in and rise up into cycle, the root hairs don't form. So uh, why is that? And that's been fascinating us, uh, trying to figure that out. And we think we have an answer, uh, some work that we've done lately. And my the student who is doing mo most of the work is this the one here, Ivy Chang, uh, very smart young lady, uh, but she's uh, been working on this question. And of course I've been helping her and uh, some others have been helping her as well. Uh, and uh, this, this shows actually a picture to the left shows a root without microbes. And you see, there's no hairs there. This is a grass, poa annua, a little blue grass. And to the right shows where she put in a bacteria and a pseudomonad again on that root. And now you see hairs formed. And, and if you look at the little uh, ends of the hairs in some of these pictures, you can see the little dots there. Those are where the bacteria squirted out of those hairs where they came out of the, the hairs. Now, so they're, they, they're going out. Okay, so our hypothesis that it has the most support and that we've developed here is that, uh, that these microbes are secreting ethylene and ethylene is also a plant hormone. And it's a growth hormone. It's also a stress hormone, but it's a growth hormone. And we think the microbes are secreting ethylene and that's causing elongation growth in these hairs. So I'll show you how that, that happens. Okay, so this is, this is actually uh, the process. The chemical interaction is actually more complicated. And as you would, as you would guess, you know, we would, of course, make things more complicated. As you, as you look at them, they become more complicated. Nothing is as simple as you think, but at first anyways. But the microbes are secreting ethylene, and that's causing the, the protoplast, the root cell, the root hair, causing that to elongate and grow. And uh, it's also causing the, the, uh, it, the root cell, that ethylene is causing the root cell to secrete exudates, sugars, to the microbes. So the microbes get sugar. But the third effect of that ethylene is it causes uh, superoxide production. So it's with that ethylene that the plant knows the, the microbe is there. And then it starts secreting superoxide onto the microbe. Okay, but then the microbe responds by production of antioxidants. And the main antioxidant we think that we can see is nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a very powerful antioxidant and it will counteract superoxide, okay? So you have these interactions that happen. And if you look at the, look below, you can see the interaction one uh, is a whole chemical interaction. That's a balanced equation there. It has ethylene combined with superoxide and we get the hydrogen peroxide. And then we also get carbon dioxide there. And then we have interaction two, nitric oxide combined with superoxide, and we get this, this chemical called peroxynitrite, but it, but it actually is, a, is a reorganized into nitrate, nitrate, which is fertilizer, right? Nitrate fertilizer. And then that's what root cells can absorb, that nitrate. Okay, so uh, anyways, those are the interactions. Okay, and uh, I'm not going to go into whole lot explaining this, uh, except that these interactions are actually inter interact with one another and they occur in the same space, right at the intersection of where the microbes and the plants are. So they're happening right in the interface with, with microbe butt up against the, the plant, the root cell. 
And the product, this is the first interaction, the product of this first interaction is that one of the products is that we get carbon dioxide. And uh, 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 that carbon dioxide is used in the next interaction. And the next interaction is, is, is actually this, it's actually, well, I guess I'm talking about the first, the first interaction here. And this is, this is actually standing for ethylene, first interaction, and it shows ethylene. This is the tomato root, it shows where the microbes are going in. And you have microbes in the root tip, in the tomato root tip. You see going in here, this area, and this is stained for ethylene where it turns a kind of a purplish where the ethylene is, and that's where the bacteria are. Also at the, at the root, uh, that's called the root cap cells, the, the microbes are going in there, and you can see the purple there. That's where the, that's where the ethylene is too. So ethylene is produced in here. Turns out, okay, the cell division zone is right here in the middle. Okay, so the microbes are actually entering or at least replicating in this zone just behind that cell division. So that's the microbial entry zone there into, into the root. This shows root cap cell, and you can see the bacteria in one of these root cap cells is sloughed off here, and you can see the purple. That's the ethylene, is the purple stain around those bacteria in there. And uh, this, is, this is actually bacteria on the surface of the root where they're going in, in that root, root area. You can see all these little dots out there. Those are the bacteria going in to that into those root cells or in the, in the, in the zone where the, where the roots are cultivating those and you're taking them in. And this is the cell now in that zone, one of the root cells. And you can see that black arrow is one of the bacteria in there. And you can see the purple around that bacteria. That's the ethylene around the bacteria. And the microbe is producing that ethylene. That's the growth hormone that's triggering growth in the, in the microbe. And this is the second interaction. Now, the second interaction is when the microbe responds to the superoxide that the plant produces, and it responds by producing nitric oxide. And that nitric oxide will combine with the superoxide produced by the plant. It acts as an antioxidant. It's the antioxidant that the microbe is producing, this nitric oxide. It, it, it responds to that superoxide and then produces nitric oxide and that combines or neutralizes the superoxide, protecting the bacteria from total degradation. So if bacteria can do this, it can survive. If it can't do this, it'll die. If it cannot produce nitric oxide, it's, it's dead. It's the death of that bacteria. It won't survive as, a, as an endophyte. It's gonna, it'll be degraded fully and the plant will get all the nutrients out of it and that'll be the end, right? It'll be, it'll be terminated as an end of uh, but, but those combine and you have nitrate forming and that nitrate can then be absorbed to the root cells. So normally uh, under conditions when plants have plenty of nitrogen, uh, we think that the plants could be providing this Nitric nitrogen to the uh, in the form of amino acids to the to the microbes, so the microbes can then make nitric oxide and protect themselves. Okay, but in instances where plants don't have nitrogen, they withdraw their uh, their uh, amino acids from their exudates, and then that would prevent. Uh, the microbes from getting any nitrogen. And so that would make the endophytes, that would make these microbes have to fix nitrogen in order to produce nitric oxide. And that 
That then would mean that under those circumstances where nitrogen is limiting, these microbes have to provide it either that or they die, either provide nitric oxide or die by superoxide death, right? So fix it and provide it or die. So it's kind of forced nitric uh, production. Okay, this, this is a, a root hair uh, stained for nitric oxide with a, with a, a stain called DAF. DAF, it's a fluorescent stain. And you can see the microbes in there, you can see the haze around them. And we think that haze is actually the nitric oxide around those microbes. So we have, uh, this is a nitrate stain. It shows the microbes in a root hair. And this nitrate stain is a diamino, oh no, it's acidified diphenylamine. You see it written down there, but it stains blue with the nitrate. And this is the product of the nitric oxide and the superoxide combined. And you can see the blue, see the bacteria at the lower arrow here. You can see the blue in there. The blue is the nitrate. So these microbes are secreting that nitrate. They're being forced to secrete nitric oxide, which turns into nitrate and the plant then can get that. They're being forced to do that by the plant because of superoxide exposure, especially targeted at the tip of that hair. So, okay, here you can see microbes here in, in root hairs again, and you can see the purple around the microbes again, that's the nitrate, okay? And this is cabbage in this case, and you can see them in there. Uh, so this, this is, we think this is, this inter chemical interactions are universal. So it's the, we think, we think it's the, the one of the, one of the, there's lots of secrets that endophytes have, right? We think this is one of the secrets that endophytes have that we deciphered. That's what we think, you know? That's our idea anyways. I mean, it, we could always add more to it. And, you know, we always talk about our, many of our discoveries as hypothesis. Uh, and this is a fully developed hypothesis, right? But we, we don't consider it, uh, our ideas fully proved until we have other lines of data that lead in and show it. So this is our first glimpse that we think it, what is happening. And of course, it's gonna take more time to find out what else is happening and you know, demonstrate all you know, aspects of it. But the, these interactions are really interesting because they are essentially a nutrient trap for these microbes. That is the plant has a trap that it is laid now for these microbes. And it, it's a trap in which these two chemical interactions have to continue or the microbes die. And uh, I'll explain that. Okay, these microbes, this is a diagram of this. These microbes are at the tip of the hair. And this is where a lot of these interactions are happening, concentrated at the tip, where those microbes are concentrating at the hair tips. But these microbes are secreting ethylene and that's giving causing the plant to secrete carbon or sugars, exudate. And so the microbes are getting these nutrients from the tips, from the tips of, the, of the root hairs, from those roots, hair, root cells themselves. They're getting sugars. And uh, so long as they secrete the ethylene, the, the root cell grows and it releases sugars, exudates to those microbes. So the microbes can grow, right? They need that to grow, otherwise they'll become dormant. Uh, and uh, you know, so that's all is all well and good. They can get nutrients by secreting ethylene, but 
because the plant also then secretes superoxide onto them because of that ethylene, uh, that forces them then, the, the microbes, to secrete nitric oxide or nitrogen. They have to secrete nitrogen. And then that gives the plant this nitrogen in the form of nitrate. So we have two loops. We have a nitrogen loop or carbon loop at the top. And we have a nitrogen loop at the bottom. And the, the microbes benefit from the carbon loop and the, the plant benefits from the nitrogen loop, at least where nitrogen fixation is happening. And if the microbes discontinue, if they can dis, discontinue the carbon loop, they can discontinue ethylene production, they don't get carbon and they die or they go dormant. Or if they discontinue the nitric oxide, the nitrogen loop, they're participating in nitrogen oxide secretion, then superoxide will degrade them because it's highly potent and it will oxidize them away. It will kill them with superoxide. So they are trapped in this, these two loops. And it's like a, I don't know, it's like a, a tick, you know, where somebody has what they just keep repeating or doing the same thing over and over and over over the same thing. And this is what's happening with these microbes, literally, and you'll see. And it results in growth of growth spurts of root hairs like this and ejections of microbes and then replications and more ethylene and more nitrate transfer and sequentially going on for an extended period of time. So these, this nutrient trap keeps these microbes in this kind of trap, in this suspended, extended symbiotic condition for an extended period of time. And uh, it, it is a way that the plants are forcing these microbes to exchange nutrients, you know, sugars for nitrogen, sugars for nitrogen. And of course, the plants are also getting other benefits because they get other nutrients from the microbes early on from removing their cell walls and degrading some of them completely getting all the nutrients out. And these that can survive in the root and, and ex exchange and, and participate in this nutrient exchange, uh, then these are the ones that can provide nitrogen and give more nitrogen to the long-term and stimulate development of the plant and also cause oxidative stress tolerance and other things in the plant. Okay, so, I mean, we think it's actually the root hairs are, have different areas where uh, different things occur, where microbes, for example, the tip we think is where nitrogen transfer occurs. That is where most of the superoxide hits the microbes and most of the nitric oxide is secreted. And then most of this nitrate forms and the plants then get most of the nitrate right there at the tip of the hair. But these microbes also move around hairs, and I'll show you that. And, and we think that it's on these lateral sides where there's less superoxide happening and where these microbes are replicated uh, along the side as they're moved along. And so that's also where nitrogen fixation happens. So nitrogen fixation happens along the sides of the hair and nitrogen transfer within the tip of the hair. And uh, this is, uh, I'll show you this cyclosis here, the cyclosis, this movement of cell material, and in this case, bacterial material. This is a sedge from one of my favorite places to do field work. I wish I could go there now. This is Bonaire in the Dutch Antilles, this island that is, uh, you know, a lot of divers go there, but it's great to do field work there. This is a little sedge that grows on the rocks and it, it grows without soil 
But what it does have, it, it, it has a lot of microbes and it's really, really cool. And this actually shows one of these hairs. Below is a picture and you can see the, uh, the hair and you can see the little red things there, those the bacteria around the periphery of those hairs. And, if, and the image is, is stained and killed. The hair is not working below, it's just a still image and it's not moving because it stain, our stain will kill it essentially. But you can see uh, the microbes there around the red. The red is actually hydrogen peroxide. Remember that first interaction that I showed you has hydrogen peroxide as one of the products. That's the hydrogen peroxide that's the product of that interaction. But you see above, this is a living hair. We make this do the reverse of a Petri dish. So we don't have to hurt it. If we hurt, if we move this hair, it'll stop because this is the cyclosis happens because of what's called the cytoskeleton in these root cells. And so with the cytoskeleton, you don't think that plants have skeletons, but they do. They have what's called the cytoskeleton and that helps these plants to move things around. And so they're moving this around, the cyclosis and the shadows going around here, those are the microbes that are going around. So plants are moving these microbes around and around and they're also breaking them up and you can see here, this is a picture of one of those. And you can see these clusters of microbes here in this hair. And you can see there's some very big and some little. Those are different ages. And so what's happening, they probably started out from one little microbe. What's happening is as moving these microbes around, the plant is breaking them up into different pieces, replicating them to different pieces, but different, encouraging them to divide and then making cloning, cloning, making clones of them. Some of these older ones are fully degrading, but the younger ones are not. And so this process keeps going is one of the things that happens as these hairs elongate. And uh, I mean, it's really, really cool. This shows what, what happens there with the hair. You can see the microbes moving around the, the length of the hair where they're replicated. You can see them accumulating at the tip. And of course, accumulating at the tip, what's happening there is they're secreting ethylene and that's causing elongation in the hair, but it's also causing the secretion of superoxide, right? And that superoxide then makes those microbes secrete nitri nitric oxide and which makes the nitrate, which then the plant can get at the hair tip. Okay, so that, that's what we appears to be happening from our experiments. Uh, but that uh, also caused, ethylene also causes a growth spurt in that hair. And when that growth spurt happens, it will push some of those microbes out the tip and then they'll reform their walls and go out to the soil. And I'll show you this. It is just the coolest thing. Uh, okay, so uh, what we think is happening with root hair growth is that we have uh, growth spurts being caused by the production of ethylene in by these microbes in bulk at the tips. So in, in mass, they all produce ethylene and then that causes a growth spurt. And then some of those microbes are ejected out. And this actually is a picture shows a growth spurt. You can see the hair, you can see the microbes out there. Well, it's not a growth spurt, it's an ejection. You can see some of the microbes right in the tip. You can also see pores. If you look in there, you can see the pores where the microbes come out. And you can see some microbes in there, still in there. So, uh, yeah, this is all, all plants do this. All plants, you don't have any hairs with no microbes. Now you can use something like, you can use vitamins, uh, thiamine, for example, to trigger hair development. 
We can also use proteins. For some reason, proteins will trigger hair development. We don't exactly understand why, but in, normally in nature, plants have to have the microbes to have hairs. This is what happens. You can see the, this is a diagram that shows that, and just you can see it A, you can see the microbes accumulating at the tip. The tip is elastic, so it's thin where the wall is thin. And so the bacteria kind of accumulate there and they hang out there because that wall will stretch. And so uh, they'll, they'll, as they're developed, they kind of go there every now and then some will be caught. And I make blue here where they're caught on the side and they kind of move around. You can see the little arrows in there that I show for psychosis happening. Okay, and then when you have an, uh, an, an ejection, a growth spurt, you can see microbes. I made red microbes coming out of there. Uh, and then they go out and they, of course, they reform their walls and go out and go out into the soil and get more nutrients. But then you have C, you have some microbes that remain after that ejection and then they're pulled back. And here's where you have uh, nitrogen fixation again in these hairs. You can see the blue ones. It's supposed to be where ideas where nitrogen fixation is happening there. That's why it's blue. And then it accumulates again at the tip. See another more red again, where they're accumulating. As they're replicating those microbes, they're going to the tip again, and it's getting more and more there. And then they have a mass, they produce ethylene, and then they have an ejection again, right? And a gro another growth spurt. Some papers where they've shown this, you can actually see, uh, in some papers they make these movies to show root hairs going, and you can see this spurts happening. We can show you here, this is a, one, of, one of our experiments, you can see a hair. This is uh, one of the Bermuda grass hairs. And here you can see we put a bacterium from the soil in it that wasn't native to Bermuda grass. And this bacterium didn't get ejected properly. Instead, what happened is these bacteria were pressed in the inside cell walls of these hairs at every growth spurt. And so you can see it's kind of banded. And those little bands there are bacteria that were pressed in that wall. And so they stayed there. And so now we can see them in the, that wall and so we can see where the growth spurt happened and and you can see they were built up again and so you have so these growth spurts we can calculate these growth spurts in hairs at least in bermuda grass happen about every 15 minutes and so microbes are ejected about every 15 minutes at least in bermuda grass you know from and so you have this and this is continually happening so so when I say a nutrient trap, imagine these microbes in there. They're in this exchange, constant exchange where they're trapped and then some of them get ejected out and then some of them get pulled back and they can replicate. And then they're trapped again right here at the tip in this nutrient exchange and then some get ejected again. And so you see this, you know, it's like boom, bang, again and again, you know, just the same process over and over again until these hairs are fully developed and all these microbes are ejected, you have the same thing happening. So, you know, root hairs are critical for this process. Root hairs, I mean, of course, root hairs, they are absorptive. A lot of work says they're absorptive of other nutrients, uh, but they also function in this nutrient exchange with these microbes inside the new, inside the root hairs themselves. And of course, these root hairs go out into the soil. You have to have air there. For one thing, you have to have air for the oxygen so, you can, so the plant can make superoxide to control these microbes. But you also have to have air around these roots, around these root hairs, because uh, that's where the nitrogen comes from, from this nitrogen 
fixation process that 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 the the air in that soil has nitrogen in it, and so the microbes then can get the nitrogen in order to protect themselves from the superoxide that the plants produce. And so you, so anyways, a a root hair can be viewed as a gas exchange organ, uh, in addition to a microbe processing organ, in addition to a a nutrient absorptive organ. So root hairs are really, they have mul multiple functions. It's a, uh, and you think about it, it's, uh, it, it really is, I mean, it's, it's the vegetable mind, you know, the creative mind of, of nature you know, is, it's fantastic. Or creative mind of the creator, you know, it's fantastic. You know, it is absolutely fantastic when you contemplate it. Absolutely. Just the, the way things make sense, the way things are organized, you know, it is, you know, we don't, we don't understand everything, but what we see is incredible, really. So what happens to plants without this? You know, we have, uh, without the rhizophagy cycle, without microbes in the plants, this is an experiment from with wheat seedlings that one of our visiting scientists did. We've done several experiments like this. We probably need to do a lot more like this, but the problem is you can't do everything. And some other things are much more fascinating than this nutrient absorption experiments. But what he did is he took wheat, he removed the microbes off, he identified some of those microbes, and then he put microbes back on one at a time. Okay, and this shows the wheat. Uh, and uh, you can see with no microbes here, to the left, and you see he put one of the microbes, the bacillus, back on, and you can see how big the roots are there and how big the shoots are. These are the same age, everything, same treatment, except one is you put the microbe back on. Then he measured microbes in the shoots, and here's with nitrogen. And without bacteria, you can see here in the shoots, without bacteria, no bacteria, you see it's this much nitrogen, you see with bacteria, three different bacteria, you can see it's about 30% more nitrogen. So 30% for grasses at least seems to be a pretty steady number. Looks like rhizophagy cycle looks like it's worth about 30% of the nitrogen. Of course, it may vary depending on the plant, you know, but I mean, a lot of plants may be getting part portion of their nitrogen from rhizophagy cycle activity. And that doesn't mean it's all their nitrogen that they're getting, but they have other sources of nitrogen, say endophytes in the leaves, for example, could be doing something. You could have mycorrhizae providing some nitrogen. You could have solubilized. We know that solubilized nutrients are important and plants can acquire those solubilized nutrients. So they're doing, plants are doing everything to get the nutrients that they require, including rhizophagy cycle. Phosphorus, here it is again, you see with no microbes. And when you add the microbes there, you see it's more. Here's potassium. This is a bit more interesting. You see no bacteria. You see the potassium is pretty low. Then you put one of these bacteria on, you can see it's like three times the potassium. So potassium seems really important to come from these bacteria and rhizophage cycle in these bacteria. And you put different bacteria on. Here's another strain, and it's not quite as good as that first bacterium or the third bacterium either, but they're still better than that without bacteria. So potassium may be one of those really important nutrients coming from rhizophagy cycle. Potassium, interestingly, is one of the nutrients that uh, is in high concentration in the cytoplasm of bacterial cells and all cells. It's like a, um, I don't know, an osmolite in cytoplasm that 
is floating around in there and uh, it's important for maintaining osmolarity and stuff like that. And it's a high concentration in the cytoplasm. So for uh, microbes that degrade, if microbes degrade these microbes, I mean, if plants degrade these microbes fully, they can get all that cytoplasm out or if they can make them leak, I say get all the potassium out of their cytoplasm. If they can make them leak potassium, they can get that potassium. So that, that may be what's happening, but it has to come out of the cytoplasm of the microbes. Okay, so calcium, any macro and micronutrient is impacted. And, and of course you could say, well, you know, but what about root development? And yeah, when these microbes increase root development, they will also increase absorption of these nutrients. So, uh, and when they increase root hair formation, they will also increase absorption of nutrients into the hair. So you have, you know, you have all of these factors going in, you know, the microbes influencing development, microbes bringing nutrients directly, plants getting those nutrients. All of this goes in to affect nutrients that plants are getting. And it's hard to, it's hard to really break down any one factor, right? To say, oh, it's all from this or it's all from this because multiple things happen, especially when you have microbes involved. Okay, so this just shows all the benefits that come with these microbes, including stress tolerance and, uh, and disease control, uh, and uh, more nutrients for the plant and better development for the plant because you have all of this stuff happening with endophytes. And that's just, I've talked about roots, right? But endophytes are in all parts of plants are in shoots. It's just harder for us to look at the shoots and the leaves because they have cuticle on them and our stains don't get in very well. And when we, when we mess around with the shoots, uh, we break, we also, we break uh, the cytoskeletons of cells. If we take a leaf, leaf and try to peel it apart and look at it, the cytoskeleton is messed up. And so we don't see the movement the way we see in the roots. So it's harder to study those, uh, but we'll get, we're going to get there because it's our next, like the, the big unknown, you know, the, 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 the forefront of, of our curiosity now is these, these leaves and what's happening in the leaves and the shoots and the growing cells in those tissues. What can we see? You know, can we see? You know, can we see similar stuff from the from the roots? But here's an example. This is a vanilla vine, and uh, vanilla vine. Uh, you know, has these. This is a vine and a climbing vine, and of course produces vanilla beans, and that's great. But they typically have these shoots, and you see over here to the left, number three up here, you see the air, you can see the water there. They typically get this water in there. And the reason is because down in those shoots, on those meristems, they're cultivating bacteria. They've got a little colony of bacteria growing. And if you look to the right here, you can see these little arrows again. You can see those little rods. Now, those are the bacteria in a little, uh, um, little film, biofilm in which they're growing there on those growing tissues, the meristematic leaf tissues. And those bacteria are actually going into those cells in those tissues. So they're entering those cells. And uh, uh, I mean, this just shows bacteria around. If you look at number six, you see bacteria around the stomata. Stomata get these bacteria because they're one of the late last things forming. And so you can see these bacteria around the stomata and going into the stomatal cells really on these leaves. And this shows the stomata close up. You can see like a little mouth here 
They're so cool. Aren't they beautiful? Look how, look how red they are too. Little stomata. Uh, and uh, you can see the bacteria all around them. This, these stomates are closed here. Uh, here you can see the bacteria as these stomates, stomata uh, mature. You can see the bacteria forming. This is a bacillus. You can see these, these are endospores of these bacteria forming as those tissues go dormant. Here, but to the, over nine here, you can see the stomata now here open and you can see all these guards all these endospores bacterial endospores filling those those uh tissues so the substomatal chambers are filled with bacteria that then form endospores in this tissue as it matures and you can see also around that if you look around where the white is those are the bacteria embedded in the cuticle of that of that tissue. These bacteria permeate this tissue. They go all throughout that tissue. And, uh, you know, it is there. They're all throughout there. So what are, what are they doing? This actually shows Levin. You can see the red here. This is confocal microscopy. The, the red shows bacteria in those guard cells in the stomates. And then you see the blue there. Those actually are the chloroplasts in those root, those plant, not root, those guard cells, those stomata those guard cells of the stomata. Uh, and so the bacteria are in there with those chloroplasts. And, uh, you know, this, this to the right just shows more bacteria, the little yellow ones, you see the red ones now in this case, over here on 12, those red ones are the chloroplasts. And the little yellow ones there are actually the bacteria uh, inside those guard cells. So they're in those tissue, they go inside those cells, just like in the root cells. So it's uh, so. Anyways, we can even do in these experiments. We do nitrogen assimilation experiments because we're really interested in nitrogen. And what we can do is we can put the plants that we're interested in studying in these chambers. And you can see the gas chamber here to the right, a desiccation chamber. And we put uh, we put uh, plants in there, and then we put our nitrogen fifteen gas. Nitrogen fifteen. Most of the air has nitrogen fourteen in it, and nitrogen fifteen at a certain ratio, right? But so what we do is we will take nitrogen fifteen and put a lot of nitrogen fifteen in there. And if nitrogen fifteen is taken into the plant, it means that microbes are absorbing nitrogen fifteen in some way. Oftentimes, it's by nitrogen fixation taking nitrogen out of the air and making protein out of it, right? And which then the plants can get. Okay, and so then we can, we can actually, what we, we can do is we can then, once we do these experiments, we can then take this material, dry it down and send it to a lab. So you can see how this science happens and we don't do everything ourselves. We send it to a lab in Georgia, the isotopic eco, ec, ecosystem, ecological, Ecosystem Functioning Isotopic Lab, something like that. But it's Georgia, University of Georgia, Athens lab that does this. doesn't cost too much. So you could do these same experiments and do this kind of work. But uh, this is what you see. And what we see is um, the once you measure the nutrients in these plant material, you can see that the young growing tissues here, you can see the 16, this number, that's the absorption of that nitrogen 15. And you can see as those tissues are older, you can see they have less absorption. So what's happening is these bacteria in these growing tissues of these leaves are absorbing those, that nitrogen 15 and it's accumulating in that tissue while older tissue doesn't. So we think that the younger tissues, just like in the younger 
growing root hairs, you know, that growth, something about the growth, you know, the providing nutrients and exudates may be enabling these microbes to fix nitrogen. And then the plant can get nitrogen from those microbes. So we think something similar could be happening. Uh, but uh, yeah, so, but, but of course that's not proved and it is a, a speculation that we have that we very strongly has piqued our curiosity that makes us, you know, really lust after these experiments that we want to do and try to figure out, you know, you can see us salivating to, you know, to get to the, to the laboratory and get this tissue and go to the roof of, the, of Ferran Hall, the roof of our building where these plants have no roots and then start looking at those for these kind of microbes. So the big questions that we want to answer some of the questions that, that I'm going to close with here is, you know, how common are these nitrogen fixing microbes and shoots and leaves of all plants? You know, have we really lost them in, in many of our plants? Can we put them back? Just what, just, just what Matt was asking when we started this discussion, you know, can we put them back? Can we maximize them? You know, we're, everyone is thinking we can, but you know, we, mostly we don't, we're guessing. You know, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Uh, are, are, are these microbes actually providing nitrogen in growing tissues, growing cells and leaves and tissues of plants? Are they directly providing nitrogen to those tissues? So that's another question that has to be answered directly with some types of experiments that have to be done. And you can envision, you know, how you could do that. And you could envision it would be hard too, because you've got to look at individual cells. And, you could do it though, you could do it. You know, there's some people who are really sophisticated. And, I mean, you could look at, for example, chlorophylls, you know, and we've done some work with, I have a friend in Mexico, Miguel Beltran Garcia and University Autonoma, Universidad Autonoma de Guadalajara, who's a brilliant young scientist who helped do this work where we looked at, uh, at, at nitrogen fixation, nitrogen 15 experiments and with microbes and then incorporation into chlorophyll, right? And then you have to then measure how heavy that chlorophyll is to see if you have nitrogen 15 going into it. But you, those kinds of works can be done. Uh, okay, so uh, let's see. And here's something really important, I think really important for crops like tomato and mint and, and, and marijuana. Uh, are, are, can these types of endophytes in trichomes, uh, can they increase the chemicals in those trichomes? Can we increase the value of those crops in terms of their healthful chemicals or their psychoactive chemicals or medicinal properties by putting the right microbes in them? And this is something that is, nobody is looking at. It's brand new, it's virgin territory. And people should be all over it. I, Jeff Lowenfels said that he was talking to some expert on trichomes. And he, he just offhandedly said, you know, what, what's the chance that there could be microbes in these trichomes and affecting development of chemicals? And, and this expert just laughed. You know, so this is where we're at. This is where it is. You know, I mean, the people aren't thinking about it. In fact, they think it's probably a crazy idea. It's probably a crazy idea, but that's what we think. We can see them in there, really. So in some plants, including, including some cannabis-associated plants. And, and finally, uh, okay, that's, that's do, they, do they, this is from Harriet Mella, 
I was just talking with interacting with early this morning or or yesterday morning early. I don't remember time goes on, you know, when you're having so much fun. But uh, do these microbes and fruits increase the helpful components like lycopene or, and and carotenes and crops like tomato and other things? Are they actually are some of the micro are besides antioxidants that the plant is producing some of those compounds? Are, are the microbes producing some of those compounds to protect themselves from the plant's reactive oxygen, from the plant's superoxide, and then can the plant then take those antioxidants from those microbes and then in, enhance their own fruits? Uh, so anyways, those are some of the questions. These are some of the papers. And uh, some of the stuff that I talked about, the nutrient trap and the two chemical interactions that has a, have us so excited. Uh, that comes from a very recent paper uh, uh, with a, one of my students, uh, Ivy Chang was the co-author on, uh, Catherine Kingsley was involved with that, helping in those studies. And I, of course, with the Stoloff, the co-author on that, the advisor and uh, uh, the encourager of, of that work. But that all three of these papers, the first one on rhizophagy, the second one uh, on endophytes in general, the third one on these chemical interactions, uh, they're all open access and you can get them. Uh, uh, two of them were in journal microorganisms. And so you'll find them in microorganisms and uh, just you, you do my name, uh, my name and and Google my name with microorganisms in it, and you'll probably come up with these two papers. And uh, so anyways, this is not a one-person operation. You know, a lot of people are involved, a lot of creativity, a lot of a lot of energy, you know, spent on this, and a lot of graduate student and visiting scientist and postdoc time in addition to the major professor, you know, who've spent years and years on this, but all these people are spending their effort and creativity on it as well. And I think this is it. I have so many questions. Okay. All right. Yeah, good, good. So first off, the trichomes, the bacterium present slide where you have Pseudomonads florensis, they look like trichomes yeah. where you have that bulb on the end. So it's like yeah. almost like and then if you look, if we go and then look at the root exudation on the aerial roots of corn, they do the same thing where they form this, this uh, mucilaginistic bub like bubble on top of the root tip. Out. That's right. And that's, that's right. where that's the, right. the Burkholderia and other microbes are found. So yeah, so with, with your corn, um, you, you have, a root there, right? It's an aerial root, right? That normally those things, <clears throat> believe it or not, at least according to one theory, right? One hypothesis about what those actually are, those prop roots, those are adaptations because ancestral corn uh, grew in the, the naturally wild ancestral corn, grew into like the, the, the sides of floodplains of 
rivers, right? And so those areas got silted periodically, silted, frequent silting. And so that makes the soil go up, 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 up. And, and so these corn plants would have to keep putting out new roots soon as they and get new soil, right? And it's a way to adapt to this constant growing. So in theory, that's what's happening. So what you see on uh, those aerial roots in our, now we cultivate them, right? We don't have that silting happening. We don't have that flooding happening. But what you see on those roots is those roots are primed for putting their microbes back into the soil. And so they have their microbes there in the roots, around their root, around their root tips, certain microbes around their root tips that they carry with them, right? And the seeds, they're into fights, right? They right. have them there. And so if you get your uh, exudates, your, your viscous, your, your gelatin, gelatinous substance there, that will provide the moisture and also limit some of the oxygen so that you can then have those microbes fixing nitrogen right there at the, that tip, even though they're not necessarily proliferating into the soil and growing. But if you were to bury that part, you would see immediate proliferation and that nitrogen fixation, of course, would continue in those growing roots. So, so yeah, so, and the, the, um, so that's what the corn, with your corn, but we can also see in root hairs, in tomato, for example, we did a study, uh, we never published it, a study of microbes in developing um, um, glandular trichomes of tomato. And there we can see the microbes in those tissues. And uh, I actually was, I mean, I told this to uh, David Johnston Monhay, who was very uh, creative young scientist. He's, in, he's now in, uh, he was in Canada for a while, uh, got his degree with uh, Manish Raizada there Canada, in Guelph. Uh, then he worked with um, Indigo Ag for a period of time. Then he left there and got a job in Cali, Colombia, uh, with uh, looking there as a faculty member there, actually uh, with a Max Planck affiliation in his, uh, he was kind of like a satellite professor, Max Planck Institute there. But I went down to visit with him a couple of years ago and sitting down drinking some craft beers in the evening, we were talking about this phenomenon of microbes in hairs, in root hairs, and I mentioned that we see them also in some trichomes like tomato. And so we started to speculate that he's a really creative guy. This was actually, he's the guy who came up with this idea. We started to speculate that, uh, that, the, that the microbes are there coming from the hairs on leaves and fruit perhaps because they populate the phyloplane the surface of these plants in order to protect the plants from disease, right? From disease agents. And we know that, that plants have these microbes on them and where do those microbes come from? And so they may come from some of these trichomes. We know also, and that may, you know, that could be a function of it. Now, I mean, there's a lot. Like little volcanoes, essentially. Like little volcanoes. 
like little volcanoes spewing out microbes, but it, you know, like, like most things, there may be multiple functions. Right. And we don't know, we don't know that all plants have microbes. And uh, I mean, that all trichomes have microbes. We do know that many that we can see, that we can stain, we see microbes in using our kind of, you know, our, our, our chemistry to view uh, now with our knowledge of, you know, what's happening chemically between the microbe and the plant. Now we can use some specific stains to say, well, look, if it's producing nitrate, then it's likely, you know, one of our microbes involved in this chemical interaction. Or if it's producing ethylene, we can say, well, okay, that's a microbe probably producing ethylene, interacting with the plant and stimulating development of the hair, right? Or development of the cell and nutrient release and so forth. So, so we can do that, but we have not yet really sunk our teeth into that question. You know, we just see them there now and we're speculating. So you see there's lots of things that need to be done. And I mean, see the benefit, potential benefit of that. Let's say you wanted to maximize, you know, mar marijuana is now a, a, an important legal cash crop, mm -hmm. right? Let's say you want to maximize your THC in marijuana and uh, you want to do that. One way to do that may be, we don't know, but maybe to get the right microbe and treat your growing marijuana plants at the point of say spray the fruits as the point of or flowers into point of flowering to get them to colonize, you know, the the developing trichomes and stimulate hyperproduction of THC. Then you have some major, major potent, you know, crops there that are um, that are that are that are really great producers, good producers, and it, it may be apart from your genetics of your of your of your crop, you know, you could you can stimulate, you know, turn, say, a poor producer into a really good producer, you know, something like that. So that all of that is potentially possible, but requires work to see if that can be done, to see to find the microbes that do it, and then to evaluate if they actually do it, right? The good thing about the Easy cannabis to, industry yeah. is they're willing to try it. They're willing to, they, cause they're going to test it and they care yeah. about that end product experience. Yeah. So in, yeah. at least in Northern California and I, I know LA has some, some, some issues with like wanting that high THC, but there's a more of a balance. Like people are looking at all the other terpenes and the other profiles and the other active ingredients. And they're looking at like a balance. And so many of those things um, I think are being controlled by the microbes and those expressions, those medicinal compounds. And as things have shifted to more biologically sound or at least acknowledging biology, we're seeing um, a complete change in cannabis for what it is. It's gone from something that I mean, Beavis and Butthead level, like <laughs> to, to people are now using it to, to fight cannabis, anxiety, to do better at their jobs and work. Um, and and it's, it's become sophisticated. And I think it's actually because they became sophisticated with their understanding of soil and, and the biology of the plant itself. And so I'm really curious as to who 
it, like specifically like, and it may be like the quality of that individual, you know what I mean? But on a bacterial level, I don't know how to like rate different bacteria against each other to, to a degree right now. <laughs> Maybe in the future I will. But um, well, I can tell you, I, I could tell you, Matt, I could tell you what you would want to do is you would want, well, what, how you could go about a, a, an experiment like this or a study like this, you would take uh, bacteria that isolated from different lines of marijuana, right? Say your good lines and say some poor lines, isolate a range of bacteria, then take those bacteria uh, and then put the, try them on your lines one at a time, one at a time, and evaluate their effect on your mix of terpenoids, cannabinoids, you know, whatever. So it's not a complicated experiment. It's a simple experiment. You just have to be a little bit of a microbiologist and you have to be uh, a little bit of a chemist, right? Because you need to learn how to then analyze for these cannabinoids and, and then see the effect. You know, that's, that's what you have to do. If you have the right mentality, you know, you can, you know, in the, the understand enough about it, you can, you can answer that. It's an easy question to answer. It just takes time. Wow. You know, it takes, it would be an ideal problem for, um, for someone who wants to work on a PhD, wants to work on a PhD, and they are um, single-minded focused on that question. The problem a lot of us have is we, we float around too much, you know, we just drift off to work on something else and so forth. But if you're focused on that question, you can go straight to it. It's not a hard problem. You know, it's not something to do. And it's not something that's going to be difficult to do. It's easy to do with just a little chemistry or a little collaboration with chemists and, you know, be an ideal PhD problem for somebody. If you have the desire to, uh, to generate some new stuff and you can, but without the resources, you know, you're going to be doing that with experiments that you can do on your own properties and with your people that work with you you know you for example there's one lady that uh oh my goodness i forget her name karen something but she's uh, emailed me several times O'Hanlon, i think is her name O'Hanlon, and she she works on developing microbes for bonsai trees and she's found that one mixture of her microbes is uh making these old bonsai trees re-bud on the old stump areas, the old stems that they thought were gone. And so they put them, their mixture of microbes on it, pseudomonas and bacillus and some other stuff. I don't know what it, exactly where she got it from. I think she isolated because she said she's a microbiologist. And, uh, and then they put them on and she said, people are finding they're making buds. And so, uh, I said, well, you know, you should follow up on that and check that. And she said, well, you know, it'd be good to collaborate on that. And uh, she has people who are doing this kind of thing. And I said, well, why don't we do some citizen science stuff, some community mm-hmm. science, and have some people, you know, do experiments with that. And that'll bring, and the beauty of that is that brings people into the science. And, uh, you know, it, it 
discovers new stuff, but it also helps us all get educated about what might be happening and focus on, you know, what's important and what's this new role. I mean, that could lead to, you know, a patent or more likely publication, because if it's a, a, a community research area, it's maybe hard to patent because everyone has it already, right? This full disclosure is already made. The public already has it. They're all talking about it Yeah. on Facebook and everywhere else, but uh, Twitter and everywhere else, but, but uh, still articles and it could lead to products, understanding products, maybe similar products that get developed by other companies. And, you know, so a lot can be, a lot can be done with this, the citizen science kind of, community science kind of approach. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important. And I know, I know your show. I've seen, I know you from several, and I mentioned before, I've seen your, your uh, uh, YouTube things when you talked about like uh, growing amaranthus and giant amaranthus and other things that you've done. I mean, that's an important education component that brings people into growing things and regenerative agriculture, regenerative living, because I think agriculture, regenerative agriculture is actually goes beyond just agriculture. It goes to regenerative living, right? Eating healthy, Absolutely. having healthy food and all kinds of stuff. So help regenerative life, you know, regenerative living. So, but anyways, yeah. So I think it's really important. Well, Going back to graduate that. school is, you're welcome. Going back to graduate school is really hard. And especially yeah. if you have a family, I mean, especially if you have a family, yeah, it's really hard. Then, yeah, my it's brother, really hard. It's yeah, my brother's a professor at University of Iowa, so I get I get a little bit of a glimpse into that. <laughs> and if you want to be a professor, Matt, it's even harder early on. I mean, one thing is when you're an old professor like me, you got you got another meeting you got to go to. But when you're young, you got to get tenure, you got to get grants. You got to do all kinds of stuff, and it's it's so hard to do early on. So I mean, young professors are they call it three ring circus, and 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 not just for laughs, they call it the three ring circus because you know you have to keep all the things going all the time to get. Yeah, tenure. I feel, I feel, yeah. I, I wonder about my brother sometimes. Uh, he uh, he he spent seven years in South Africa working on his um, his uh, his doctorate uh, thesis. And uh, he was he was actually tracing where the funding went for all the support for AIDS um, victims in South wow. Africa. So he's well, that's a real important thing. Yeah, it's super wow. important. He wrote a yeah, book. Yeah, super important. Um, yeah. Wow, that's critical. Important. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, he's that's a re really he he's uh he's my older brother. Yeah. He uh he's yeah. my brother I'm closest to and uh, at. You know, when I was a musician and he was going down the academic route, it, it felt like we were going like this. But now, after all these years, we're like coming. Back to, <laughs> yeah. so it's super nice. Well, you know what? I'm sure he's really proud of you. Well, well, I think I, I think the feeling's mutual. Um, yeah. He's got yeah. he's got a yeah. beautiful family, and he's he's done really well. Um, and he's worked so hard. Like you said, it's so hard to do what what uh, that route. Um, yeah. Tis. To, to circle back with a, a few final questions, uh, what new stains are you working on? Because I know the nitrate stain came in recently and it like opened up the world and um, maybe it wasn't recently. Maybe you started using it for this recent well, thing. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. For this recent, for this work, we used it. And so this uh, coming, coming with these insights, you know, it, it makes us so that we're going to use these stains more frequently. And we do have to develop these stains ourselves because they're not commonly used for microscopy. So it's true. But now, I mean, some of this development, it's not that hard. I mean, I, I look in the literature and say, what have people used for ethylene? And then you try to look at that and then you say, okay, do I have any of that? Can I adapt it for microscopy? And you go get it and try it and it works. You know, mm. boom, it's done. There you go. You have a new stain. Is it incredible uh, or you, had to, to it, have this yeah. much data to be able to research keyword search? I can't even, I still yeah. can't get over the fact that we can keyword search a thousand page document and instantly find uh, it is. It is so, it is, yeah, I can't either. Uh, I mean, and I, and I, I mean, it is, I mean, we use the internet so much and Google is so helpful, but I am so down on Facebook and all those, you know, social media. I hate to yeah. tell you, cause I know you, we're, we both use it. I use, uh, I use it too, but I try to stay away from Facebook these days. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't want to be politically jerked around by anybody. Right. Right. I don't want to get in there. And, and people have such hateful things they say to each other yeah. or about each other. And I just don't, I don't need, I, come on. You know, I'm 63 years old. I, I don't want to think bad about anybody. Right. I, even my relatives, you know, why do you have to say stupid crap like that? You know, so at best I just stay away. Just don't, just don't, don't even get it. You know, think good things about everybody and not, and not be exposed to that. So I try to stay away from Facebook. And these days, Twitter too. Now, LinkedIn, I do. ResearchGate, I do. Uh, but you know, you don't have any nasty stuff people writing on LinkedIn. And yeah. uh, ResearchGate, it's mostly about, one is about science, ResearchGate. The other one about, you know, this is Facebook for scientists. There's nothing hateful on there. Or, or LinkedIn for professional people. You know? right, so nothing, right. tend not to have hateful stuff there. So it's much better. But when you have something that's so open, people say whatever comes to their mind, that it can be terrible. It really is. It's unfortunate. Um, I try to take a, keep it at an arm's length, use it utilitarianly and just to keep, I mean, I manage everything. So I've read all, every single negative comment that's ever been said about me. And <laughs> as a high school teacher, you know- I avoid like, that if I can. Yeah. yeah no, that. it's not healthy. Try not, to, not healthy. It's not healthy. It's and not certainly healthy. don't take it to heart. Don't take it to heart. Right. Don't take it to heart. I mean, yeah, people, people can, they, for whatever reason, they can say things negative about others in order to make themselves feel good, you know? And it's just, there's no point to it. Yeah. There's no point to doing that, you know? And it, certainly don't take it to heart. Oh yeah, absolutely not. There's too, there's too much important stuff to do. That's what always keeps me coming back to snapping out of it. And also just my past being a uh, high school teacher. I mean, all these predilections that these people are demonstrating right. is their worst personality or worst day from high school. Yeah. And they're just like, yeah, they right. just got to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. something yeah. that I've, uh, that occurred to me about, about rhizophagy is the compost tea. Everyone for years has been making compost teas, adding it without even understanding the rhizophagy cycle. And in my mind, I'm like, holy cow, this is why we're seeing such plant expression. And logically, 
I was reasoning that these, these microbes were super loading up with, we're adding our kelp and our fish emulsion and we're, we're aerating it. So they're, they're, they're populating, but then they're also being oxidized. So some of them are dying and, and they're, and you know what I mean? There's a constant consumption and proliferation, but then when we're adding them to the soil, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that regardless of how bad our soil is, the reason that we're seeing like awesome reactions, many of us is because they're going right in and they're feeding the rhizophagy cycle. And the one question I have is, well, two questions, but the first question I have is, and I think you've already answered it today, but are all those, those nutrients, the micro and macronutrients that are in those microbes being drained as they come in? Um, and is there a certain microbes or certain nutrients that wouldn't be able to make that journey and be released in, in a rhizophagy cycle? No, no, the, to answer the uh, later part first, uh, I think all nutrients, I mean, from what we can tell, you know, all nutrients are impacted. It's hard to say precisely which nutrients come from being oxidized, the microbe actually being oxidized versus those that come from making wrong root hairs and absorbing, right? It's right. kind of hard to separate that. It's kind of hard to separate that out. Um, but all nutrients appear to be impacted. All nutrients that we have measured, we've a lot of ma macronutrients and micronutrients are impacted by rhizophagy cycle. Other Different plants may do it differently. Different microbes may carry different. I mean, we know different microbes carry different nutrients. We know that. Uh, some of them, the microbes are fully degraded. Okay, this is the other part I was, actually, when you were talking about all the tea, the, the uh, nutrient tea that you right. make and put on, right? It is a, the term that I came to mind is the smorgasbord of microbes that plants are, are consuming, right? It's yeah. all laid out there. Ah, just, just, just get them all, just keep gorging them. But now the reality is some of those microbes may be like E. coli and they're just, or, or some microbes that are not resistant to oxidation. And so when they're here with superoxide, they're going to boom, just totally be degraded, right? Right. Others are going to be able to participate in the symbiosis. They're going to be able to do the two, the nutrient trap, to do two equations, right? The two equations, the two interactions, the two nutrient interactions, and do that, the two nutrient loops, right? The, the carbon loop and then the nitrogen loop, and then they're going to survive. And then those are the ones that are going to stay in the plant. Are and those the ones that can't. Are those Bocholderia uh, and like Saccharomyces cerevisia, like the ones that yeah, are like, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Saccharomyces. Saccharomyces can do it because it's, for one thing, it's a yeast and they're highly oxidative resistant. So they could get in there and they're not going to be degraded by superoxide. So Bocholderia may be secreting nitric nitric oxide and maybe other antioxidants and surviving in there, right? This is one that goes, Burkle dairy is one that will actually be in a nodule and certain species will be in nodules in legumes, right? And so you have some of these same kind of interactions in nodules, but nodules are different because nodules can happen over a long period of time, right? 
mature root tissues will have these nodules where they'll have nitrogen fixation exchange in them. Whereas with the root hairs, we're talking about something that happens only in elongating hairs, growing mm. tissues. So this, this kind of nitrogen fixation is different. But yes, the microbe has to be able to do these two reactions, at least according to our two equations hypothesis, right? Our nutrient trap hypothesis. They have to be in, they have to be able to do that in order to survive. If they can't, they're going to be fully degraded. If they're too resistant, they'll actually be, they will actually inhibit the plant. Mm. We know that some microbes will go in. We can take, for example, Micrococcus luteus out of tomato. We can put it in a grass or some other plants and it will inhibit those plants. It'll go inside and inhibit. And what happens is the Micrococcus luteus is so resistant by producing, producing carotenes and other anti and strep and uh, superoxide dismutases to break down the superoxide that they can't be controlled. They can't be broken down. And instead, when they go in, the, the, the plant can't control the microbe. And in, in that case, they inhibit the plant. And we've, we've called that endobiome interference because it goes in, in the, in the biome of the plant, right? And it interferes with development or other activities of the, in the biome of the, inside the root cells. Okay, but uh, yeah, endobiome interference, we call it Whoa. a big fancy term for that, to, to de designate that it's not always beneficial, right? You can't have these negative interactions that happen. So you have a full But it's not viral, those. right? It's, it's a new, no, it's it's a not. new thing. Wow. It, well, it's not viral. It, it will, because normally healthy plants will exclude these microbes because they have their own microbes in them, right? So you put micrococcus down and it just doesn't affect it. It doesn't go in. Oh. But if you remove other microbes and then you feed it micrococcus, it does go in and it okay. inhibits the plant. Or, or if you put a lot of the micrococcus down, then it will go in and inhibit if you, or you know what I'm saying, or other get it, yeah. microbe that's highly resistant, it can. So these can be deleterious, but most most healthy plants will exclude these kind of microbes from them. But there is the potential of some plant-plant interaction where a microbe that's stimulatory in one plant can go out into another plant and inhibit that plant. And, and here you have some kind of allelopathic you know, effect where one plant's microbes repels another plant, right? Keeps it at bay and or goes into that microbe and takes nutrients back to the mother plant. So you could even have that kind of an association. And is this yeah. why people are saying like allelopathy might not be what we think it is? It might be more complex. Allelopathy might be a little more complex. Yeah, allelopathy. In some cases, it might involve microbes. Yeah. That's yeah. what they're kind of alluding to in the opening of this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. good. Oh yeah, man, I am so excited. It's a new world. It's a new world. You know, I think regenerative agriculture has opened the door to a new world and mm. it, 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 it makes a place for the kind of biology and to fight by under biology in the lab. It's a, it's a place to, you know, regenerative agriculture and biological agriculture has always had a place, special place for microbes in cultivation, plant cultivation. Well, the science of endophytes 
fits very well with the philosophy of regenerative agriculture, the science oh, yeah. of regenerative agriculture. It's become part of the science of regenerative agriculture, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that going to regenerative living, we're going to see the microbes follow that progression out. So the microbes aren't going to just be in the soil and the food. We're going to have, instead of antimicrobial soap, we're going to have, you know, bars or liquid that is positive microbes. And so here be- is, here is a truism that uh, humans and animals have our microbes because of the thing in our guts, because of the things that we eat. And uh, people who eat diverse plant diets, diverse diets of anything, like people who live in the jungles in Africa or in tropics, they have very diverse microbial microflora community in their guts. People in, uh, in developed countries that eat and I've mentioned this before, engineered foods, right? I mean, there's yeah. nothing wrong with engineers, but they're so good and they're so smart. My daughter is an engineer who is brilliant and she loves to go collecting mushrooms with me and she's so smart. She's able to do that. But the engineers gave us sterilized foods, mm. sterile foods and factory produced foods that have no microbes on them foods that have no roughage in them, foods that are just pure, pure ways to, you know, to get all the fibers off of, off of rice and off of wheat so that we don't have to worry about that stuff. You know, extract out the pigments and things so that we have just the pure, you know, gave us, they gave us pure sugars, you know, yeah. for our diet and stuff like that. And all that leads to, and, and just the fact that humans cook almost everything that we eat gave us this, this collapsing gut microbiome that's leading to all of these diseases, the IBD and the Crohn's. And then, and then on top of that, you, you take, you know, besides the, removing the microbes that we take in, you take the antibiotics that we consume and the, and the beverages and the foods that we eat that have inhibitors in them, microbial inhibitors, right? preservatives to kill the microbes or to stop the microbes from replicating. And you have a a tragedy in the gut, right? The tragedy in the gut is this collapsing microbial diversity in our, in our gut microbiomes that is leaving us unhealthy and, uh, and sick and all that, all that goes to, you know, it also, I mean, from agriculture, you know, growing plants on soils that are not, diverse and not healthy, you get plants that are not with microbes that are not diverse. And when we eat that, we even further compound it by sterilizing those foods and we eat that. And so the crisis, it is crisis in our, in our microbiome, our gut microbiome. And yeah, yeah. Healthy living is, is healthy agriculture, you know, healthy plant, healthy gardening, not eating everything cooked, not overcooking everything. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. That's what, that, so that's what you were saying anyways. That's what you were saying, Matt, anyways. I just repeated it in a, in a similar way. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, James. This was absolutely a stunner of a My presentation pleasure. and discussion. 
I'm so excited about, about sharing this with the world and letting everyone know and getting everyone excited about this because this is opening, like as we said, it's opening a new door and, uh, and it's just beginning. It is. Yes. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it. I love your book. And uh, if I can help out with the, any new figures or any new ideas for your next edition of it, I'd be happy to help. You know, I enjoyed reading it this edition and uh, so anyways just let me know well thank you so much this was perfect my pleasure thank you i enjoyed it soil is the linchpin to life to civilization to health if we want a healthy future to fight environmental collapse to live regeneratively and ethically and to experience a life of abundance and freedom. We want healthy and abundant soil everywhere. But that means we need to relearn old ways and learn some new ways to build, cycle, and partner with soil and soil life. We can change the world radically, but it's up to us. We have to make those choices. We have to partner with soil and soil life. It takes our participation and support. Will you join us? Regenerative Soil, the full program, we're going to dive deep. We're going to be looking commercial. We're going to be looking DIY. We're going to be going garden. We're going to be going farm scale. We're going to cover it all. We want to serve everyone at all levels, and we want to create that fluency, micro to macro, so that we can spread the regeneration of our soil, our ecosystems, all our systems, all across the world. You can do this. You can regenerate soil because regenerative soil is the linchpin for life. It's the linchpin for all systems, all of our civilization. Everything is running on this. Everything is based on this. Everything is relying upon this. Check out the link down below. Sign up and and join us in Regenerative Soil, the full online course. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively.